Were these the lambs the last song that was sung in the vision of John in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible? That's where he saw angels singing, Worthy is the lamb, and Jesus is that lamb. We praise God for that. We are continuing our series on our preaching, Yahweh is King. Yahweh is the name of God in the Old Testament. And we are picking up the story in chapter 4 of the book of Samuel. Now, to those of you who might be hearing this for the first time or are not familiar with the story, the book of Samuel is a book of transition from Judges to the monarchy. The first three kings of the book of Samuel in the story of Israel is, was uh, Saul, David, and Solomon. It's also a transition between the high priests Eli and Samuel. And so the book of Samuel is just a book of transition, but a lot more. Today, I want to bring your attention to, to insights and probably new perspectives as you read the book of Samuel. When we read the, the story of the book of Samuel, sometimes it's just a story and we don't pick up the principles and we, it seems to be bare. And we're looking at what is God telling me through the story? My prayer is that God will quicken our hearts and our minds so that when we read the story together, when we study and dig in, we'll be able to catch that message from the Lord. Let me ask you this as, as we start. What is the saddest story you've heard or read or watched? I'm, I'm hoping it's not a Korean telenovela. <laughs> My top three would be, uh, you know, for all time, Schindler's List, um, this movie is based on a true story of Holocaust. It was a film, uh, black and white. It's really tragic. From beginning to end, it's tragic. Uh, my second would probably be The Life. Uh, Life is Beautiful. It's an Italian movie. Uh, another story based on the Holocaust, but it's comedy, drama. So at the end, you're like, what is this? I'm, I'm sad, but I'm also happy. Uh, last would be um, Silence by Shosako Endo. Um, it's a story about Catholic priests that were sent from uh, Portugal to Japan in the 17th century. And this Father Rodriguez, uh, the main protagonist in the story, um, he encountered unimaginable suffering and persecution. And so he was hiding in, in one of the portions of the film. He was hiding because the Japanese authorities were trying to kill him. And he was praying to God. And he was alone. And he was saying, God, where are you? I'm suffering. Uh, what do you want me to do? And all he had was silence. This story, from beginning to end, he was contending with God. Why? Where? What, what's going to happen? He's probably asking the same question that we might be asking the same thing. It's not why we suffer. It's where are you in my suffering? Why are you silent? Let me read to you an excerpt from his novel. He said, 20 years have passed since the persecution broke out. The soil of Japan has been filled with lament of so many Christians. The red blood of priests has flowed profusely. And in the face of this terrible and merciless sacrifice offered to him, God has remained silent. The first time I watched this, I felt so depressed for the whole day. It was heavy on me. Because I realized in every trial, in every difficulty, in every circumstances, when circumstances go beyond our control, we lose it. We, 
we get confused, we get disoriented, and we want to know what's going on. How are we going to put things back together? And the first thing we do is refer back to God because whether we like it or not, whether we accept it or not, we believe innately that God is in control. So we refer back to God. And although we run our lives as if we are, you know, like the song, we are the captain of our soul, the master of our faith, but when face to face with real tragedy, we go back to God because this is an existential question. This is the same existential issue in the story of the book of Samuel that is presented in chapter 4. So let me go to the story in chapter 4. If you have your Bibles and your cell phones, you may read with me or on the screen. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. It says, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. Drew up in line means battle formation. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Now, burying soldiers, 4,000 soldiers, is not an easy thing. Might have taken them days to bury these 4,000 people. Verse 3, it says, And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Good question. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh. Shiloh is where the covenant is, the temple. That it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. This is why I always say that the Ark of the Covenant is the throne of God. It represents and symbolizes the throne of God. It says this, the presence of God is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. If you read this portion of the story, there's a lot of things happening in here. But one thing is for sure, Israel went to battle. It makes you want to think first, why was there a battle in the first place? If, if you read back in the book of Joshua, their calling was to subdue the land. Subdue the land, the whole land of Canaan. The whole land of Canaan has become the promised land. It should be a holy land. They are to subdue. That was their calling. The reason why there's, there are Philistines in the land, the reason why there's a battle going on, because they failed to subdue the land. That means in the time of Joshua, they were not able to fully subdue the land. So the Philistines were their enemies now. And the Philistines, according to history, are fierce warriors. Now, later on, when you continue reading the story, you will encounter Goliath. Goliath was one of the giants that fought with the Philistines. Scales, armor, you name it. You're just, uh, if you are, have watched med medieval um, battles, you would see you know, knights wearing armors. And you would think of Goliath, fierce armor fierce giant for the Philistines. So this battle is sort of a, this is not an easy battle for them. In fact, 4,000 people died in battle. That's a substantial amount of people dying in one day. And with that loss, I think we are missing something. The question is, why did they lose in the first place? Were they not the people of God? 
Is not Yahweh supposed to make them win? Then the scriptures tell us that Yahweh is undefeatable. So the question is, why did they lose in the first place? Something is not right in here. Let me explain something. Losing and winning a battle is a matter of their response to covenant. Now, if you remember, what is a covenant? Covenant goes way back to the book of Exodus. When the people of Israel exited Egypt, they went to the wilderness and they stopped at Mount Sinai. In Mount Sinai, they faced God and made their covenant with God. Covenant is a sort of sacred agreement between Israel and Yahweh that they will be faithful to each other like husband and wife, saying the vows, I do, at the very end. That was the covenant. They are supposed to be faithful to each other. So in the Articles of the Covenant, losing a battle, you'll find this in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, losing a battle is a consequence of unfaithfulness. Now, we're not surprised at this one. This is obvious because the, the book of Judges, at the very end of it, it says, during those times, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So we already know they will lose the battle because they were unfaithful. That is expected. But let me clarify what's happening now. And you may think, does it apply today? The present-day church have no covenant with God that guarantees victory. We're not part of the covenant in Exodus. That means if we decide one day to march against ISIS or the Taliban or the North Koreans, we cannot invoke God on the basis of this covenant because we're not part of this covenant. Now, this covenant is unique to Israel as a race of people. And in this principle, it goes also without saying that the other promises in the Old Testament Include, including the windows of heaven in the book of Malachi, are also part of this covenant. So if you read the Old Testament and you read promises, you've got to slow down. You've got to think first, is this part of their covenant specific to the nation of Israel? Now more on this later. Let's get back to the text. Now if the Israelites knew from the get-go that their loss wasn't accidental, it was, because of a, it was not because of a bad strategy, it was not because of an, a bad intelligence report or that they are missing the tools of war. They knew from the get-go that the reason for their loss was because of their unfaithfulness. And so they asked in verse 3, they said, And when the people, of, people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? It was very clear to them. God defeated them. It was intentional on God's part. God was punishing them. Why has God defeated us today before the Philistines? Because they knew God was not on their side. But they don't care about the covenant. In fact, they didn't even bother to ask why God fought against them. So instead of pausing to think why they lost, they had a good they had suggestion. Now you probably can imagine this. They're in the camp, the elders are meeting. And probably one would say, let's do this kind of a strategy. The other one would say, let's bring the armaments. Uh, the other one would say, let's do something crazy. And then this, this, this other guy would say, how about we bring the Ark of the Covenant so that God will fight for us? That's a good idea. And that's what they did. Does this sound smart to you? Bringing the Ark of the Covenant inside the camp? What this means is that they are forcing God to fight for them even though they are unfaithful to God. 
So they're thinking maybe if we bring the throne of God, he will be forced to make us win because his reputation is on the line. And if he doesn't make us win, the Philistines would think that he is weak than their idol Dagon. So Yahweh would be forced to give us victory. And if he doesn't let us win, we will only think that he's weak. Not only that, but we will also think that he doesn't care. See, this is a kind of line that we call blackmail. This is nothing but a hostage situation for them. This is like teaching your child to behave, and when he doesn't, you withhold something as a form of discipline. We call this negative reinforcement. Now, parents know this. Parents are expert on this. I also do this. Because we don't reward bad behavior. Amen to that? Say amen. We don't reward bad behavior. But because we are holding something that our child wants, we become the bad guy. Suddenly, you're not caring, you don't love him, and you made him sad. This is nothing more than blackmail, a hostage situation. This is exactly what Israel did to Yahweh by bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the battle. I was kind of reflecting on this myself, and I was asking, do I also do this to God? Do I blackmail God in one way or another, in my you know, subtle ways? Have you ever quoted Jeremiah 29, 11? Oh, this is a beautiful verse. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Some people would even memorize this, post it in their homes, because this is a very positive verse. But I wonder that when we do this, when we quote this verse, when we read this back to God, are we also taking God hostage, blackmailing God for some reason? When we pray, when we ask God to heal us or grant our prayers or success in, in business or pray for a job or pray for the, you know, the Mr. Right and Miss Right, we appeal to this passage because in our minds, God promised, and since He's loving, He cares for us, and nothing is impossible to Him, therefore, He cannot break His promise. How many of us can relate to this one? Yes? Now, before I answer that, I want you to think about this. What is the idea behind why we ask people to pray with us? Why is the, what is the idea behind telling people to pray for us? Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to ask people to pray for us. I'm just asking and being curious about our motivation behind asking people to pray for us. Is it because we believe that the more people pray with us, the more pressure it will put on God, and so he will say yes. If that's the case, how is it different from the mob on the streets or a hunger strike? Do we believe that we can pressure God to the point that he will be able to change his will and his plans to suit our needs and our prayers? In the same way, what's the motivation behind giving certain percentages because God will multiply it? What's the motivation behind, you know, some people do panata. I don't know how to translate in English. The idea is that when I do certain things, God will also replicate that and do certain things for me. What's behind those things? What are we missing here? I think it's because we are missing the context of Jeremiah 29, 11, whenever we quote that verse. Because when God made this declaration of promise to Israel as a nation, 
He was promising on a condition of obedience and faithfulness to the covenant. Again, this is all about the covenant. The basis why God is requiring His people to be faithful is because they promised in the first place. The only reason why the people can expect God to be faithful is because also God promised on the basis of the covenant. So if you go back to Jeremiah 29, two chapters before that, God was telling the people that judgment is coming in the form of invasion. And God was speaking to Jeremiah and he was saying, Jeremiah, tell the people, Nebuchadnezzar is coming. Two things that you can do. You can either resist or you can either submit to Nebuchadnezzar. Some very nationalistic and patriotic Israelites would not say they will submit to Nebuchadnezzar. They fought against Nebuchadnezzar because they believe it's not the will of God. But the will of God was very clear in Jeremiah 27. They were unfaithful. God punished them. Nebuchadnezzar came. Nebuchadnezzar will destroy the temple. And if they are willing to submit to Nebuchadnezzar, which is the will of God at that point, they will be exiled to Babylon. So that means the condition of obedience was dismissed by the majority of the Israelites during that time in Jeremiah. So when the Babylonians came, some people understood willingly and submitted to Nebuchadnezzar. They did not resist. They went to exile. But others resisted, and they remained in Jerusalem. Some fought and some died. Now here's the kicker. When Jeremiah was writing Jeremiah 29.11, he was addressing the people in Babylon, not the people in Jerusalem. He was addressing those people who submitted under Nebuchadnezzar, not the people who resisted God and His will. That's why Jeremiah was telling the people in exile, I have plans for you, to prosper you, not to harm you. After 70 years, God will bring you back to the land. It's not the people who were in Israel who resisted God's will. So that means whenever I quote this verse, and I am unfaithful to God, that means it's not applicable to me. The only time it's applicable to me is when I am faithful to the covenant. Now, this is the presence. Um, this is confusing and conflicting because the will of God during the time was in the form of exile. Who would ever think that way? Who would ever think that tragedy can become God's will for someone, especially for the people of God? Think about this. Who in the right mind would think that the persecution and the tribulation and the suffering and the loss and the tragedy will work together for our good? But this is what exactly Paul is saying. Everything works together for our good. And when he said all things work together, he's, he's, he's meaning persecution, tragedy, suffering, loss, death. That's all things work together for good. You see, we cannot predict God. God this is so much smarter than all of us combined. We cannot put God in a box. We cannot manipulate Him like entitled juveniles throwing a fit. God is beyond that. Listen, I understand that following God is not appealing to some people because following God entails a lot of sacrifices without the guarantee of victory. But whenever we think of victory, we have our own ideas of victory in the form of success, of health, and blessings. The form of victory that Jesus talks about is a form of victory that's the way of the cross. You read the book of Revelation and you don't find people, the Christians, the church, fighting against 
the Antichrist or fighting against the beast or fighting against Rome and winning the battle. The winning battle, the victory that the book of Revelation talks about, is about hanging on to their faith. It's about staying in faith. It's about being faithful to God. So when Paul said, all things work together for good, he said, if you are called according to your purpose, all things work according to, all, work, all things work, all things, uh, okay, I'm getting lost in here. All things work together for good only if you work according to your purpose. And the emphasis on this is your purpose. So if all these things are not working together for good, so maybe we have to refer back to, am I doing my purpose? Am I doing my calling? This is exactly what, what Paul said in Romans 8, 37. He said, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, when we think about conquering, we're thinking of victory, and that's good. But victory here is not victory as in, in the absence of war. Victory here is something else, because if you refer back to verse 35, Romans 8.35, it will say, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? What Paul is simply saying is that victory and conquering has something to do with the tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. This is what we are conquering and in order to conquer that, we have to hang on to our faith. What this means is that even in the midst of our greatest tragedy in life, in your greatest sorrow, the love of God is never absent from us. We are never separated from His love. Because in the moment, it may seem that God has abandoned us in the moment of suffering and distress, but in fact, God has chosen to suffer with us. That is the whole idea of the love of God. Now, the issue of suffering and pain is one of the biggest arguments of the unbelievers. Now, you might encounter some, especially the agnostics and the atheists in particular, and they would say, God does not exist because pain exists. Or if there's suffering, therefore, God does not exist. See, as much as the Disobedient Israelites in time of Joshua did not understand. Unbelievers will also not understand because their idea of God is a predictable God. It's a limited kind of God. It's not the God Almighty. So Israel came to a point where they have treated God as a means to an end. So when atheists, agnostics, unbelievers say, God does not exist because suffering exists, there's a presupposition at the back of their minds that if there's God, then nothing of this should happen. But the point is that when we think of God, we're thinking of Him as a means to an end. I mean, I need God so I can be successful. I need God so I can be happy. I need God so there's no pain. But it doesn't work that way. Some people would, would think, especially the Israelites, would think that if they bring sacrifice... God makes their crops grow. If they bring animal sacrifices, God will multiply their harvest. It doesn't matter if he, they love God or they sincerely honor God. As long as they bring the goods in the temple, they get stuff from God. 
And this is clearly demonstrated in the story why they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the battle. Because the Ark is simply a means to an end. God to them was simply a means to an end. And what's interesting here is that the Philistines also have the same idea of God or gods, small g. Let, let's continue from verse 6. It says, And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A god has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. They even have the information wrong. It was not in the wilderness. It was in Egypt. They had, you know, news travel so fast that even them, they understood that Yahweh, although they did not really understand who Yahweh is, they thought he was gods or many gods, are the gods of the Israelites. And, and they knew what they now know is that this kind of God, the God of the Israelites, are powerful. But the way they understand is the same thing how the Israelites understand. Gods are just means to an end. They think that Yahweh has jurisdiction only in the south. Because in the ancient times, gods are territorial. There's a god in the Mediterranean, there's a god in Egypt, there's a god in Palestine, there's a god in Canaan, there's a god in... They're territorials. There's a god in the mountain, there's a god in the sea. That's why they have different kind of gods. And they thought that Yahweh, the God of Israelites, has only jurisdiction in the south, in Egypt, because that's where he won. But they're not assuming that God has jurisdiction in the coastal areas where they live, near the sea. In fact, they believe that their idol, their god, Dagon, is in charge of the coastal areas. And that's why if you go back to history and you check this, Dagon looks like half man, half fish. Because he's in charge of the coastal seas, the coastal areas. Makes you want to think why the logo of Starbucks is half woman, half fish. I don't know the answer to that. I'm just asking. Another question that I think is more important is that why didn't the Philistines also bring Dagon into their camp? If the Israelites brought the Ark of the Covenant, why did they not bring you know, like battle of the gods, but why did not? Because it was obvious from the very beginning, they know Dagon was inferior. I mean, Yahweh fought all the gods in Egypt, and we have only one, it's Dagon. Dagon has no record of accomplishments. Dagon has no record of dividing the Red Sea or making bread rain from heaven for 40 years, and so on and so forth. So they know their god, their idol, is inferior. So here comes the climax of the story in verse 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, even if they had the Ark of the Covenant in their camp. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. That's a lot. And the Ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. Now, this is what I call a tragedy. First thing, 4,000 people died, initial skirmishes. And now 30,000 soldiers were slaughtered. Not just died, slaughtered. And then there were the two priests who died along. And the most important thing in the nation of Israel 
the ark of God was captured. The ark of God, who is said to be where God's presence is enthroned, was captured. Let that sink in for a moment. What does it mean? What does it mean? What are the implications of the ark being captured? The implications were so great that when the news traveled back to Israel and when it reached Eli the high priest, it was so great that he had a heart attack and he died on the spot. Verse 18. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, the one who brought the news, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. Now, if the Israelites are correct, the capture of the ark means the end of their race. Because if the ark functions like a talisman, a lucky charm, then it's the only thing that protects them from destruction. If the ark now is captured, who's protecting them? Because that's how they see the ark of the covenant. And I'm glad they're wrong. The ark of the covenant can never function like a lucky charm. Because you see, the capture of the ark doesn't mean God was captured along with the ark. Somebody say amen to that. If, the, if I'm an Israelite and I'm thinking the ark of God was captured and my God was also captured, then my God is a limited kind of God. He's not God Almighty. I mean, this God was the God creator of heaven and earth. This God is so mighty so that he divided the Red Sea. I mean, how can this God be almighty and all-powerful and yet be captured by some Philistine punks? It cannot be. The only reason why the Philistines or the Israelites would think that way is if they have a very small, limited understanding of who God really is. God is almighty. He cannot be confined to a single space let alone a portable box or a temple building. But what does the capture of the ark really mean? First, God allowed it. There's no other explanation. God allowed the actor be captured. Why? Because it doesn't make sense to say God is the creator of heavens and earth. It's just that the Philistines got lucky that day, and therefore God is not almighty. The answer to that is actually found in the latter part of the story. The same day, when the, the news came, Eli died, the wife of Phinehas was in labor. He was, she was rushed to the hospital, and there she got the bad news. It was like a freight train. And when hearing upon it, and upon hearing, she died. And the news of her husband's death, her father-in-law's death, and the worst, the capture of the Ark of the Covenant, brought unimaginable sorrow to her, so that the last act before she died was to name her son Ichabod. What is Ichabod? She explained that in verse 21 and verse 22. It says, She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. And by glory, she meant the presence of God departed from Israel. Because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The presence of God departed from Israel. 
The word for glory is kavod. Now, you don't have to memorize that. But it pertains to the presence of God. Kavod. But the same word kavod is the same word that was used for Eli. He died. He fell over backwards because he was heavy. Kavod. So the glory is kavod. Heavy is kavod. This kavod was also used when God accused Eli of giving sons more honor than him. And God told Eli, you are treating me with contempt because you honor your sons more than me. Honor is kavod. So glory, kavod, heavy, kavod, honor, kavod. It's like there's poetry in here. It's like saying when Eli started honoring kavod more to his sons than God, he became complicit in their contempt, so he became heavy for eating meat, kavod, so that the glory of God finally Kavod, depart from Israel. By implication, without the presence of God in Israel, the holy land is nothing but an ordinary land. The temple is an ordinary tent. Without the presence of God, Israelites are just simple people. This is why, when you read the book of Psalm, you find David in chapter 51. He committed a crime, and God confronted him. So in chapter 51, he thought he was above the law. He thought he could get away with this crime. He thought his position was secure because he was king. But then a man of God, a prophet of God, confronted him, and God told him, you are king, but you sinned against God, and therefore you're still guilty. And because of that, David took it to heart. And this is what he said in, um, in... And this is what he said in verse 51, 11. He said, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because he understood from a previous event that God is able, that God's presence is able to depart from Israel. He doesn't want it to happen to him. It also happened in the life of Samuel and Saul, sorry, in Saul. It means do not Cast your presence, your kavod from me. Because it is either he is kicked from the presence of God or that God's presence goes away. That happened to Israel, that happened to Saul. He understood that his anointing works like the covenant of God. You see, we cannot get God, take God hostage. We cannot blackmail God. God is free to go when his people does not represent him anymore. What's the whole idea of bringing the ark into the camp. If you refer back to the book of Joshua, Joshua did that in Jericho. They were carrying the ark of the covenant because God told them so. Not in this. Not in this. There's a protocol in Leviticus that says only the high priest goes inside the most holy place to visit the ark of the covenant, the throne of God, and to bring blood of sacrifice. Only once a year, Yom Kippur. What this means is that these two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, decided for themselves with the agreement of their father, Eli, to take the Ark of the Covenant away from the temple, bring them into the Philistines' camp. They broke protocol. They broke the covenant because they were using God as a means to an end. Beloved, we cannot use God as a means to an end. I'm going to say something serious here. It might hurt you, but it's because I care. Let me give it to you straight. 
It doesn't matter even if you claim to have been a Christian for a long time, maybe 10 years or 20 years, and you've been attending church for a pretty consistent basis. But as long as you've been treating God as a means to an end, that means you don't really know God at all. Because to say Yahweh is king means I surrender my life to Him. He's my king. And if I surrender my life to Him, I worship Him, not because I want to receive stuff, When I go to church, it's not because I want to earn points. When I pray, it's not because I want to change God's mind. You see, everybody loves God to a certain point. Even unbelievers love God. Almost everyone loves God. But that love is affirmed as long as God's demands remain vague. As long as our relationship with Him remains vague. As long as His title as King remains vague. I love God as long as He doesn't demand from me. That is treating God with contempt. That's treating God as a means to an end. So that means to say Yahweh is king is to fully accept that He demands from us. What does God demand? My mouth, my heart, my soul, my mind, my hands, my entire life. That's what it means to say God is king. See, the real God doesn't demand that I just go to church on Sundays and forget Him throughout the week. The real God demands that I worship Him seven days a week, that every move, every breath, every thought is captive to obey Him. What that means is that God doesn't just want part of you. In the famous line of C.S. Lewis, he said, God wants all of you. We call it surrender. If I say Yahweh is king, that means I submit to Him in surrender. Surrender demands that my plans are aligned to God's plans. Surrender demands that my desires are now aligned to God's, that my lifestyle is now aligned to God's. Surrender means anytime God calls me, I respond with the response of Eli. Here I am. It's like, sir, yes, sir, I'm here. I'm ready. It's, surrender means whatever God calls me to do, I won't say I'm not qualified. I'm not ready to do it. Uh, give it to the pastor. He's, he's able to do it. Surrender means anytime God tells you to do something, you're going to say, I'm here, I'm available, I'm ready. Because that is what it means to say Yahweh is king. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that sometimes we treat you as a means to an end. We confess, Father, that sometimes we get so confused. We get so focused on something else other than you. We also confess, Father, as a church that sometimes we do not deliberately become unfaithful, but sometimes we forget about you. We lose the focus. There's so many things in the world that catch our attention. Father, would you bring us back to you Talk to us in your most special way. Enlighten us with your Holy Spirit. Show to us our calling. Allow us to freely move and surrender ourselves to you. Our every breath, our every thought, captive to you in obedience. Father, our desire is to only give you what's worth 
And as we sing, worthy, worthy, you are worthy, O Lord. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. It means we surrender ourselves to you. It means we acknowledge you as King of our lives. And to say Yahweh is King is to also say Jesus is King. And there's only one King in our lives, and it's you. Father, allow us to live a life that's consistent, that's pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.